Uh, thank you all for joining us. The uh, topic of the next panel is what monetary policy can and can't do. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, and you have bios uh, in your packets, so I'm just going to introduce our speakers, and we'll get right into it to give us more time uh, for conversation afterwards. So I'd like to start with uh, Manuel Sanchez, Deputy Governor of the Bank of Mexico. Thank you. Well, good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me to be here today. It is really an honor to participate this year again in another monetary conference organized by the Cato Institute. Monetary policy is powerful when focused on what it can clearly accomplish, but negative consequences can occur when it takes on ancillary objectives. Some of its capabilities are well known, while others are still in the process of being properly understood. Hence, addressing the question of what it can and cannot do should be approached with modesty. Today, I would like to present my views on this issue by first discussing positive impacts expected for monetary policy. Second, I would like to examine potential negative effects. Third, I will touch on the need for time consistency to make policy reliable. Fourth, I will briefly discuss monetary challenges faced by emerging economies in the current context of the extraordinary accommodative monetary stances of advanced nations. Let me begin with the positive impacts. The most indisputable con contribution monetary policy can make to the well-being of any society is definitely price stability. As succinctly stated by Milton Friedman, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, and hence monetary policy can control it. The benefits of price stability are well known, and it, it provides a favorable framework for efficiency and economic growth. High inflation, on the other hand, breeds wasted resources, and when unexpected, ex unexpected can generate consumption and investment errors. It can even for, uh, fuel a loss of confidence uh, in a country's currency. The widespread acceptance of monetary policy to control persistent changes in the average level of prices has led central banks to establish price stability as their primary objective. In practice, central banks understand this as a minimum inflation rate, say 2 or 3%, consistent with factors such as innovations, and consumer responses to relative price changes not properly accounted for by traditional price indexes. In light of this definition, pursuing price stability may encompass averting the risk of deflation, a fear recently manifested by several monetary authorities in advanced countries. Regarding deflation, I would like to make four comments. First, as you all remember, some deflation can theoretically be justified in terms of economic welfare. Friedman advanced the argument that one way the economy can achieve the long-run long optimum quantity of money is with a rate of deflation that makes the nominal rate of interest equal to zero. Another way would be to pay interest on money balances. Second, large time series data reveal that there is no clear negative relationship between deflation and economic growth across countries. Furthermore, in the post-war period, bouts of deflation have been milder and less persistent than before, with average growth during deflation years exceeding that of inflation years. Third, 
Recent low inflation largely resulting from declining commodity prices, notably energy, has sparked deflation scares in several developed countries. However, these risks should be properly assessed. Falling inflation stemming from reduction in relative prices while beneficial to consumers may not persist given this, that some of the causes behind them are necessarily transitory, such as overinvestment in the energy industry. Fourth, as with the fight against inflation, monetary policy is well equipped to uh, forestall and welcome deflation. The historical international record of the ends of episodes of deflation proves this to be the case. The existence of a zero lower bound for policy interest rates in environments seen to be flirting with deflation has long inspired economists to conduct research. Approaches taken have engendered controversy over the power of monetary policy at the zero lower bound. However, recent large-scale asset purchases undertaken by central banks in advanced countries confirm and illustrate that the possibilities for monetary policy do not end at the zero lower bound. Finally, under emerging, emergency conditions of financial market distress, central banks may perform the role of lender of last resort. One example can be found in the extraordinary actions of the US Federal Reserve during 2008. Provision of needed liquidity helps restore normal market conditions. This should always be done at a penalty rate and against sufficient collateral following Beishkot advice as a temporary measure in order to avoid moral hazard. While there is a broad consensus of the ability of monetary policy to control inflation over time, there is less agreement on the goals it could pursue, other goals. One tendency accentuated in the weight of the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 is to assign additional objectives to monetary policy. Two goals stand out. One is the long-standing aim to boost economic activity. It is widely accepted that long-term growth depends on real factors, such as investment in both physical uh, and human capital, as well as total factor productivity. Their behavior over the long haul is independent of monetary policy, and hence the long-term neutrality of money should hold. While the short-term is concerned, uh, there is controversy over the capacity of monetary policy to stimulate the economy. Under conditions of full employment, completely anticipated expansionary monetary policies are expected to produce inflation. And there are rational expectations, models that uh, uh, incorporate that uh, possibility. However, given the long and variable lags with which monetary acts, monetary policy acts, Attempts to exploit these trade-offs can result in output instability. International experience with high and volatile inflation during the 1970s and the 1980s illustrates this danger. Under the shadow of the global crisis, many developed countries have held extremely loose monetary policies for a prolonged period of time. This has been possible apparently thanks to the relative stability of long-term inflation expectations. Some studies suggest that extraordinary accommodation has supported economic activity, although the degree to which this has happened is still subject to debate. Meanwhile, negative side effects may be accumulating. Another goal which in recent years have, has gained 
prominence is to request that monetary policy safeguard financial stability. Although financial instability is a somewhat ambiguous notion, it is generally, refer generally referred to as a situation in which financial markets exhibit disallocations to the extent that their functioning is impaired with adverse impacts on economic activity. Aside from fulfillment of the central bank's role of lend as a lender of last resort, the best monetary policy can do for financial stability is to avoid becoming a source of problems, notably by deviating from the primary goal of price stability. For example, monetary policy can react preemptively to aggregate demand pressures that may endanger the inflation target. As a beneficial byproduct, this measure may contribute to the maintenance of financial stability um, by indirectly attenuating incentives for financial excesses. Even though monetary policy may thus aid financial stability, it can hardly take the, te the task on as an objective in itself. To begin with, such a goal cannot be translated into an unambiguous quantifiable target. Hence, the evaluation of its attainment is cumbersome. Perhaps more importantly, if pursuing financial stability is meant to include identifying potential asset price bubbles, leaning against them, and trying to prick them, this may be close to an impossible task. One essential characteristic of bubbles that lead to crises is that they don't obviously look like bubbles until they implode. The authorities have no comparative advantage in identifying financial bubbles, but even if they did have a crystal ball to tell bubbles apart from healthy growth, monetary instruments may be ill-suited for the purpose. For example, higher interest rates in an emerging economy meant to deflate a bubble fed by substantial capital inflows may actually exacerbate the problem by attracting more flows. Therefore, financial stability should be regarded as a separate objective to be tackled with non-monetary tools. The first line of attack to reduce financial systemic risk should be to maintain a sound regulatory and supervisory framework, which includes strict capitalization and liquidity rules, as well as, a clear, or, as, well as clear resolution schemes for, for financial institutions. In short, the biggest risk with additional goals, as Friedman warned almost 50 years ago, is that monetary policy may end up not accomplishing what it, it is most suited to do, in the pursuit of what it is less suited to do. As with other policies, monetary actions can produce negative effects, although in some cases this may be unintended. In others, likely costs are taken on because they are assumed to be outweighed by expected benefits. A leading traumatic case occurred during the Great Depression, which in which the US Federal Reserve did not meet an increased demand for liquidity, and we know all the consequences from that. But more often than not, in many economics, excessive monetary expansion has led to periods of significant inflation. Additionally, monetary policy that is too easy may be a cause of financial problems. Specifically, it can trigger the search for yield and the ordinary taking, taking of too much risk. For instance, 
A loose stance may have contributed to the run-up of the U.S. credit and housing bubbles prior to the big financial crisis. Although debate over, debate over the importance of this element relative to other policies continues to this day. Furthermore, the increasingly extraordinary monetary accommodation in advanced countries since the global turmoil, which has included massive asset uh, purchases for a long time, and in some cases, negative policy interest rates may be engendering financial imbalances, not only in these economies, but also in other nations. Other negative impacts may include the undertaking of quasi-fiscal operations, blurring the independence of monetary policy, incentives for governments to postpone needed fiscal and structural adjustments, fewer motives for business to improve efficiency, questionable income redistribution, and future difficulties controlling inflation. Some of these costs may take time to become evident, thus allowing expansionary monetary policies to claim principally benefits. However, should significant problems arise, policy could lose credibility. An objective evaluation of causes of any possible negative effect will ne by necessity take time. Given its capabilities and bounds, it is desirable for monetary policy to focus on price stability. Effectiveness hinges on, authorities commit, on the authorities' commitment to this goal. In addition to this strategy, this strategy must be well understood by the public, although complexities are inherent in, this, in the endeavor. One is political pressure or principal agent problems that call for deviation from the price stability target. Another complication might stem from the existence of more than one goal, which may make the rationale of monetary policy decisions hard to convey. One more may come from the lack of clarity regarding the way policymakers react to available information. One way to facilitate coherence and clarity is for central banks to express long-term guidance for their future actions in a form that may appropriate, approximate a policy rule a position that was, has been very clearly put forward by, by John Taylor. There is evidence that periods when monetary policy is rule-like largely coincide with economic, good economic performance. Let me conclude with just a few words about challenges for emerging economies. Emerging economies confront their own challenges for appropriately conducted monetary policy. On the one hand, these countries need to control inflation, especially in light of long histories of significant price instability. During the post-war period, developing countries have commonly lacked advanced countries in these efforts frequently because of fiscal dominance. On the other hand, emerging market authorities have always had to consider the decisions of major central banks and the effects on their economies in the present context Loose monetary stances in advanced nations may have triggered spillover effects on emerging economies via capital flows, including ample foreign currency lending and rises in financial asset prices. Expectations for the unwinding of lax policies have started to turn the tables on these impacts as reflected by the weakening trend for emerging market currencies, among other tendencies. In the attempt to moderate these effects, many financial authorities have responded with measures frequently justified as macroprudential policies. In particular, initially, many central banks cut policy rates 
In fact, there is evidence that in recent years, monetary policy in emerging economies has tended to become looser than what would have been granted by the own, their own price stability mandates. Many economies also implemented FX intervention to accumulate international reserves. Recently, several countries have reserved these measures, have reversed these measures. Trying to counteract effects of external monetary policy have been resulted in some costs to some central banks in emerging economies. This may include possible moral hazard from investors' expectations of being protected from losses in risk, risk positions, increased uncertainty regarding policy measures, as well as damaged progress toward the attainment of price stability. In fact, in some cases, it has become clear that imbalances have largely resulted from misguided domestic policies, such as excessively st stimulative fiscal and financial measures. Those blaming problems on foreign lax monetary stances may have distracted countries from correcting internal fragilities in a timely way. A challenge going forward is for central banks in emerging economies to pr continue to pursue price stability in the face of uncommon monetary normalization in the United States, while at the same time taking into consideration possible spill spillover spillovers to the extent only, in my view, only to the extent that they may have some bearing on achievement of their inflation targets. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, next up, we have uh, George Topolis, the uh, member of the Monetary Policy Committee uh, of the European Central Bank and the Bank of Greece. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I thank Jim Dorn for the invitation. My presentation will be based on a paper that I co-authored for this conference with Harris Tellis. In our paper, we deal with the following question. Should monetary policy be based on rules, or should it be based on discretion? This question has been at the heart of an ongoing debate between John Taylor and the former Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. Bernanke favors what he calls constrained discretion, under which the implementation of monetary policy should be left to the judgment of the policymakers. In his view, what is important for effective policymaking is to set goals, such as targets for the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. The rest of policymaking should consist of executing whatever the policymakers think needs to be done with the policy interest rate to achieve the goals. There's no need to articulate a decision rule or a strategy for the policy interest rate. Taylor has a very different view. Under the famous rule that bears John Taylor's name, the policy rate would respond to deviations of observed inflation from the target inflation rate and to deviations of observed GDP from potential GDP, that is, the output gap. The rule prescribes that the policy rate should be raised when inflation is above target or when output is above potential. Taylor believes that a major advantage of his rule is that it makes monetary policy transparent and predictable. The better the people can predict the way the monetary authorities will act, the better they can plan their investment and consumption decisions, and the more likely they will act the way the monetary authorities desire them to act. Taylor also believes that the Fed's failure to follow a Taylor rule from the period during 2003 to 2006 led to overly low interest rates and financial market bubbles culminating in the 2007 and 8 financial crisis. In his view, 
If the Fed had followed a Taylor rule in the years leading up to 2007, there would not have been a financial crisis. And so we have two very distinguished economists with two very different views about how monetary policy should be conducted. One of these economists, Ben Bernanke, says, let the monetary authorities be free to achieve their goals the way they see fit. The other, John Taylor, says, don't give those authorities too much freedom. Bind them by rules, otherwise they can create problems. The debate between rules versus discretion on monetary policy is an old one. It goes back at least to the 1930s when a group of University of Chicago economists led by Henry Simons, proposed that the monetary authority should be bound by a rule that aims to achieve price level stability. For many years, that debate was largely confined to the academic community. It spilled over from the academic community to the policy arena in 1958, when Milton Friedman first proposed a money supply rule to a congressional committee. During the 1950s and 60s, Friedman spearheaded the renewed interest in the subject of monetary policy against the then ruling Keynesian orthodoxy, which had downplayed the role of monetary policy in the economy. It was Friedman's contributions that helped underpin the shift away by many central banks during the 1980s and 90s from a highly discretionary monetary policy to a policy with a more medium systematic orientation aimed at controlling inflation. Friedman's contributions have had a considerable influence on the policy strategy of the European Central Bank, including the ECB's main policy objective, which is price stability in the medium term. But almost 60 years have passed since Friedman first proposed his money supply rule. In today's world, would Friedman support Bernanke's position or Taylor's position? This question, what would Milton Friedman do now, remains highly relevant. During the past few years, the question has been the focus of articles in the media, including the Washington Post and The Economist, both of which published articles with that very title. The answer to the question, however, is not straightforward because it depends on which Milton Friedman one is considering. Once upon a time, there was a Keynesian Milton Friedman. His transformation from a Keynesian to a monetarist contains lessons for the debate between Bernanke and Taylor. Here's how that transformation came about. Friedman began teaching at the University of Chicago in 1946. At that time, he favored using fiscal policy, not monetary policy, to stabilize output at full employment. He thought that the way to combat inflation was by raising tax rates, not by controlling the money supply. He thought that open market operations are ineffective and should be abolished. In short, Milton Friedman believed in the Keynesian religion. Then came his collaboration with Anna Schwartz, who during the 1940s had been like Friedman, the Keynesian. In 1948, they began working on their book, A Monetary History of the United States, which is now considered to be, along with Keynes's general theory, one of the two most influential books that were published in economics during the 20th century. They estimated that the book would take three years to complete. It took 20 years and put them both through an intellectual odyssey as the evidence they accumulated and evaluated changed the views that they had held at the beginning of their odyssey and also changed the views of the academics profession and the economics profession in general. What was this evidence that created a revolution in economic policy thinking? Basically, it consisted of two parts. A part that dealt with the role of money in the economy over long periods of time 
in a part that dealt with the role of money over short periods of time, that is within the business cycle. Over the long term, they found that monetary policy plays no role in influencing economic growth, which depended on real factors such as the growth of the labor supply and the growth of capital. Yet they also found that over the long run, the money supply was the main determinant of inflation. The message from the long run data was clear. To control inflation, the authorities need to control money growth. In the short run, however, things are very different. Monetary policy, they found, can be highly disruptive. The prime example of monetary policy's disruptive powers was the Great Depression of 1929 to 1933. Contradicting the received wisdom at the time they wrote, which held that money was just a passive player in the Great Depression, Friedman and Schwartz showed that the Great Depression was, in their words, a tragic testimonial to the powers of monetary forces. How could monetary forces wreak havoc on the economy? The answer provided by Friedman and Schwartz was very unsettling. It had to do with the personal attributes of the monetary authorities. Friedman and Schwartz showed that the Federal Reserve officials during the Great Depression, who allowed the money supply to collapse by one-third and stood by while one-third of the nation's banks closed their doors, were incompetent and misunderstood the effects of monetary policy on the economy. Beyond that, Friedman and Schwartz conjectured that even competent monetary authorities could become subjected to political pressures and misled by fads in economic thinking. These findings underpinned Friedman's famous policy proposal that the money supply should increase annually within a range of 3 to 5% a year in order to keep inflation under control and also to take monetary policy implementation out of the hands of potentially incompetent policymakers. Friedman never believed that his money supply rule would be a magic bullet. He realized it wouldn't eliminate mild economic fluctuations. But it would almost certainly rule out, he believed, the major fluctuations that had been caused by policy mistakes in the past. What then would Friedman have thought about a Taylor rule? During his lifetime, he expressed two concerns about such rules. First, because the Taylor rule is a feedback rule, that is, under the rule, the policy authorities respond to the present state of the economy as reflected in output and inflation. It's vulnerable to what Friedman considered to be the destabilizing effects of long and variable lags in monetary policy. These lags mean that countercyclical policy, even if determined under a feedback rule, can be a source of shocks to an economy since, for example, the effects of a policy tightening taken to reduce output and constrain inflation in the present might not kick in until the future contractionary phase of the cycle amplifying the contraction. Second, feedback rules that depend on such concepts as potential output depend on concepts which are unobservable. And since they're unobservable, it can be difficult for policymakers to form a consensus about their values. Therefore, they introduce an element of judgment or discretion into, into policymaking. Nevertheless, both the Taylor rule and the Friedman money supply rule share several important characteristics. Both rules have been formulated so that they're transparent and easy to understand. By limiting the amount of discretion in policymaking, both rules limit the potential for political interference in, in policymaking. 
Both rules draw a clear separation of monetary policy from fiscal policy, further limiting the potential for political interference. Both rules place price stability at the heart of monetary policy, and crucially, both rules focus on the need to reduce both policy uncertainty and the possibility of repeating the policy mistakes of the past, including the, those that led to the Great Depression of the 1930s and those that led to the high inflation, high unemployment decade of the 1970s. For those of you who may not recognize the name, Arthur Burns was once a very famous and highly regarded economist. During the 1950s, Burns had been chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Eisenhower administration. He had been president of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he had been president of the American Economic Association. Burns was also Milton Friedman's teacher in the 1930s. Friedman considered Burns to be the teacher who most influenced his own thinking. Burns, however, was also Federal Reserve Chairman from 1970 to 1978, a period marked by very high inflation and very high unemployment. This highly regarded economist became subjected to political pressures and to fads from Keynesian thinking about the ineffectiveness of monetary policy. As a result, he mismanaged monetary policy and therefore the economy, confirming one of Friedman's concerns about discretion. At the time that Friedman first proposed his money supply rule, he made it clear the rule was not set in stone. He was open to other rules that could become more suitable should our understanding of the economy be improved. During his later years, he acknowledged that our understanding of the economy had indeed improved and that he had been favorably impressed with the Fed's performance during the period from the mid-1980s to the late 1990s. During that period, John Taylor and others have shown that a Taylor rule accurately captured movements in the Fed's policy rate. In other words, policy was being conducted as if the Fed had been following a Taylor rule. For the reasons, therefore, that I just mentioned, I believe that Friedman would have become very sympathetic toward a Taylor rule. He would have regarded the Taylor rule's focus on reducing both policy uncertainty and the policy mistakes of the past as a close relative of his money supply rule. What would Friedman have thought about Bernanke's constrained discretion? Although Friedman had been favorably impressed by the Fed's performance during his later years, he would have remained concerned, in my opinion, whether a favorable performance by one group of monetary authorities would ensure that future groups of authorities would always remain unconstrained from political pressures and free from fads in economic policy thinking. At the time of Milton's 90th birthday celebration in 2002, a then Federal Reserve official paid tribute to Friedman and Schwartz with the following acknowledgement, and I'd like to quote this. I would like to say to Milton and Anna that regarding the Great Depression, you're right, we did it. We, the Federal Reserve, did it. We're very sorry, but thanks, <laughs> but thanks to you, we won't do it again. That Fed official was Ben Bernanke, who was a distinguished monetary historian, had learned from his, mistake, from his study of the mistakes of the past. Friedman would have questioned, however, whether future Fed, Fed officials might not do it again, and whether a federal 
authority in the future might turn out to be not like Ben Bernanke, but like Arthur Burns. For these reasons, he would have remained committed to rules. And then there's another reason. Friedman began his graduate studies at the University of Chicago in 1932, and he became immediately the beneficiary of a rule. His very first class was taught by Jacob Viner, a famous trade theorist with a reputation for being a strict disciplinarian as a teacher. In Friedman's first day in Viner's class, Viner announced that the students would have to get up because they would have to be seated in accordance with the rule based on the alphabetical ordering of last names. It turned out to be a very advantageous arrangement for Friedman. He was seated next to a student whose last name was Director. Several years later, Friedman and Rose Director would be married. The benefits of rules would remain with him for the rest of his life. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, finally we have uh, Richmond Fed President Jeffrey Lacker. So uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity to participate in this discussion of what monetary policy can and can't do. In thinking about this topic, uh, it occurred to me that the negative side of the question, what it can't do, generates a very long list. Uh, in fact, probably longer than many people think. So for today's discussion, I wanted to focus on the positive and discuss uh, the one thing I think we should be pretty certain monetary policy can do, which is to determine the long-run path of the price level. Recent experience has caused some to question whether monetary policy's ability to achieve even this modest goal has diminished or has been lost in the years since the Great Recession. I'll argue that the central bank's ability to influence inflation and how it does so is essentially unchanged. Uh, I also believe that monetary policy's ability to affect inflation is essentially independent of its ability to affect uh, real uh, economic activity which is generally limited and temporary. My view of what monetary policy can do is based on the perhaps old-fashioned notion that uh, money creation is at the heart of price level determination. Before I begin, though, uh, as I'm sure you know, it's standard practice for Federal Reserve officials in settings such as this to begin with a disclaimer, which I will now recite. Uh, the views expressed are my own and the, not those of the Federal Reserve System or any other members of the Federal Open Market Committee. So I, I'll take as my starting point that monetary policy is uniquely capable of affecting the price level over the longer term. Uh, I take that as um, uh, an implication of the benchmark models we use for uh, thinking about these things. Uh, indeed, in the benchmark classical or neoclassical or New Keynesian economic model, um, without some form of friction uh, in, in which money is essentially neutral, the price level is all that monetary policy is going to affect. And the price level, after all, is simply the rate of exchange between money and goods. So the quantity of money must be related to how much uh, goods uh, the, each unit can buy, how to match the quantity of money in a theoretical model uh, with a particular empirical measure of money. is not always straightforward. But the ability of monetary policy to affect the price level or the rate of inflation over time uh, is um, a property of a, a wide array of benchmark models, and it's the natural st starting point 
and it's a principle that's embedded in the FOMC's uh, statement concerning its longer-run goals. In contrast, monetary policy's ability to affect real economic activity, at least when monetary policy is being reasonably well executed, can be quite limited and almost always is short-lived. Real activity is driven predominantly by factors beyond the control of monetary policy, productivity and population growth, for example. In the standard models used for policy analysis, monetary policy's real effects are generally uh, derived from frictions that impede the rapid adjustment of the overall level of prices to changed monetary conditions. Such frictions are almost always short-run phenomena that generate transitory deviations in real activity, and their empirical uh, significance is a matter of ongoing research and debate. It's true that egregious monetary policy errors, uh, we, heard, we just heard about the 1930s, can seriously damage the economy, for instance, by adding extraneous volatility uh, or by uh, reducing the informativeness of relative price signals. But in typical circumstances, monetary policy that successfully stabilizes inflation and inflation expectations will have only modest temporary effects on uh, real activity. The mechanism through which monetary policy has its ultimate effect on the price level is through the process of money creation. That is, the process by which central bank actions affect the distinct forms of money, such as bank deposits that people use in transactions for goods and services. Now, it's common these days to think of monetary policy as setting an interest rate rather than a money supply. And I, I think this owes to the learnings over time that the demand for money seems to uh, fluctuate significantly, and central banks have found it more effective to focus on uh, setting interest rates. And indeed, we have a, a class of models in which uh, the role of money in uh, determining the price level is uh, relegated to a, uh, the background, is, is, is sort of held aside uh, and, and not uh, front and center in uh, the workings of the, uh, the, the new Keynesian model that, um, for example, uh, President Bullard discussed earlier this morning. Nonetheless, prior to 2008, the Fed achieved its target for the federal funds rate, its interest rate target is the price of overnight loans of reserves, it did so by manipulating the quantity of bank reserves, a monetary liability of the Federal Reserve. Reductions in the Fed's interest rate target thus necessitated increases in the supply of bank reserves and vice versa. And the resulting money creation, both by the central bank and the private banking system, is what in turn generates uh, price level determination. Now, if frictions in uh, markets for goods or services or financial markets impede price adjustment, then monetary policy may temporarily affect real economic activity along with its effect on the price level. In particular, a low interest rate policy will tend to stimulate real economic activity for a time. These effects can give rise to an empirical correlation between the observed behavior of inflation and measures of real economic activity. And such correlations are often referred to as Phillips curves relationships. Uh, real resource utilization or real activity positively correlated with inflation. But the important thing to note is these are empirical relationships and not causal. It's important to note that the standard framework for understanding monetary policy transmission is inconsistent with a popular interpretation of the Phillips curve, which is that low interest rates raise inflation because the stimulation of real activity puts upward pressure on this part's a little vague, real or, or, or nominal resource costs. 
For example, one sometimes hear that, hears that, quote, high rates of resource utilization lead to rising inflation, or that an empirical breakdown in the Phillips curve relationship means that it's harder for the Fed to bring, uh, its, uh, bring inflation back to our 2% objective. So reasoning is fundamentally flawed, at least within the frameworks that we use to analyze monetary policy. Monetary policy does not affect inflation through its effect on real activity. Monetary policy affects inflation and real activity simultaneously. If the relevant frictions are minimal so that monetary policy has little effect on real activity, inflation is still driven directly by monetary policy. So a weak Phillips curve relationship does not imply that monetary policy has any less influence over inflation. So with that perspective in mind, I want to say a few words about recent experience. Reconciling the behavior of monetary measures with the behavior of inflation has been more difficult since the crisis. The dramatic increase in the Fed's monetary liabilities after 2008 from, as President Bullard noted, just under $1 trillion to over $4 trillion now has led to dire warnings from some critics, uh, some of whom have appeared at previous editions of this conference, um, that surging inflation. Uh, was imminent, and that obviously hasn't happened. Inflation has not only failed to rise, but it has been persistently low uh, for a, uh, some time now, the FOMC's stated goal of 2%. For example, the last reading of 2% or greater for the 12-month change in the price index for personal consumption expenditures was April 2012, and since 2013, the core index has fluctuated between 1.2 and 1.6%. Now, some argue that the zero bound on interest rates has been interfering with the Fed's ability to keep inflation from falling. This is based on the idea widely attributed to the Swedish economist Newt Vixell that keeping inflation close to our objective requires that uh, real inflation-adjusted short-term uh, interest rates should track the economy's underlying natural uh, real interest rate. Um, because the Fed's nominal interest rate target has been constrained by zero, Price uh, policy might be disinflationary if the natural real rate has fallen significantly. Now, this hypothesis is difficult to assess because the natural interest rate is not directly observable. And so independent measurements naturally rely on auxiliary assumptions and, and theories. At this point, though, there's a, uh, although there's a fair amount of uncertainty around common estimates, most estimates of the natural interest rate in the U.S. have clustered, cluster at or just above zero. And that's notably above, well above, the current real interest rate, uh, which is at least negative one, perhaps as low as negative, closer to negative 2%. So at this point, a Vixellian perspective does not suggest that the zero lower bound is impeding the Fed's ability to attain its 2% inflation target. In fact, this perspective bolsters the case for raising the federal funds rate target right now, but that's another discussion. Moreover, I'd say the actual behavior of inflation in recent years does not warrant such pessimism. Statistically speaking, inflation appears to have some slow-moving components, which allow it to stray sometimes for extended periods from its longer-run trend. In other words, inflation does not seem to behave as if each year's result is the roll of a dice unconnected with the previous year's experience. Given the historical behavior of inflation in recent decades, a period of time when the Fed's widely considered to have achieved the stability of inflation and inflation expectations, an extended one-sided deviation, like the one we're currently experiencing, turns out to be not unlikely as a statistical matter. In essence, it could be due to chance alone. 
So I don't think the recent behavior of inflation implies a more permanent departure from our target. The second reason I'm not pessimistic about the ability of monetary policy to control inflation has to do with the mechanics of monetary policy. So allow me to explain. In the standard model, monetary policy operations were premised the actual arrangements in place prior to the financial crisis, where the Federal Reserve controlled the quantity of its monetary liabilities, consisting of currency and bank reserves. Both were non-interest-bearing. The quantity demanded for each was a downward-sloping function of the nominal interest rate, and the Federal Reserve controlled the overall supply of its liabilities through open market operations in order to achieve a target level for the short-term nominal interest rate set by the Federal Open Market Committee. To lower rates, for example, the supply of monetary liabilities would be increased through open market purchases, making bank reserves less scarce, putting downward pressure on nominal rates. This picture changed a great deal after the crisis. Reserve account balances now earn explicit interest at a rate set by the Federal Reserve. And as I noted earlier, the supply of bank reserves has increased dramatically. So the mechanics of monetary policy are necessarily different than they were in the decades before the Great Recession. Some economists have argued that in the current regime, bank reserves are perfect substitutes for short-term Treasury securities, and that as a result, monetary policy may be relatively impotent. Open market purchases of U.S. Treasury securities, this argument goes, are just exchanges of one liquid government liability for another. Banks will simply hold fewer Treasury securities and more bank reserves, leaving economic activity uh, unaffected. Uh, this argument um, uh, neglects a key characteristic of bank reserves, however. While Treasury securities by, can be held by virtually anybody, any financial entity, but any people as well, and firms, bank reserves can only be held by banks. Only banks can have accounts with the Federal Reserve banks, and so only banks can hold bank reserves. The banking system can shed treasuries or other assets in order to accommodate larger reserve account balances, but there's an upper limit to this process. At some point, banks would have to raise more capital or do something else to make room in their portfolio uh, for higher reserve account balances. And this would force broader changes in portfolios that would inevitably affect economic conditions, including the price level. Richmond Fed economist Duberto Ennis has provided a, an explicit model that captures this logic very elegantly. The intuition is that when the quantity of bank reserves is small enough and interest rates are above the interest rate that the that the central bank pays on excess reserves, then the price level determination works the usual way uh, as it did under the old regime. When the quantity of bank reserves is large enough, bank balance sheets are forced to adjust. The, um, essentially, the, the, the capital requirement uh, binds. And again, the quantity of central bank liabilities directly affects the price level. But in between, there's a broad zone in which the quantity of bank reserves can vary without affecting the price level. And this story seems to be consistent with the difficulty of finding conclusive evidence of economic effects from the Fed's large-scale asset purchase programs. Um, it also uh, seems plausible that uh, successive rounds of quantitative easing have had little or no effect. Essentially, that's equally consistent with the data. Uh, uh, no, little or no effect apart from the potential signaling uh, that, it, that it provided regarding the FOMC's outlook for future economic growth um, or future policy settings. So we've been operating, essentially, this, this theory would go, um, in this, this zone in which changes in the quantity of monetary liabilities are, are subject to essentially to the Medigliani-Miller theorem and don't have an effect on, um, on much. Um, and to, to get a handle on this, if you add up the liquidity buffers that banks hold, banks report to us, the, their liquidity buffers, 
Um, it's held in the form of bank reserves, but also sh liquid short-term uh, assets like uh, treasury securities or agency securities. Uh, reserve account balances are 40% of the banking system's liquid buffers. So we'd have to increase bank reserves by that much in order to fill up their liquidity buffers. And then we'd have to increase it more in order to really force portfolio adjustment on the banking system. And that's, that's the way to think about, uh, about this, this intuition. Now, at the same time, this framework applies that large enough asset purchases would do that, would compel changes in bank balance sheets and affect economic outcomes. So this bolsters my confidence uh, that uh, the intuition of the standard approach remains relevant. Monetary policy still has the capability of affecting inflation and uh, the price level over time. I therefore continue to hold the view, as expressed in the FOMC statement of its long-term goals, the monetary policy has the unique ability to determine inflation over time. That, infl that ability is independent of whether or not there's a reliable Phillips curve correlation. And moreover, it remains true in a world with interest on reserves and large reserve account balances. True despite the fact that there's been a dramatic increase in bank reserves and uh, monetary liabilities of the Fed uh, without a, a correspondingly dramatic increase in the price level. The effect of monetary policy on real activity, however, on the other hand, is likely to be transitory, and that suggests caution in trying to use monetary policy to engineer significant real effects over the medium term. Even more caution should apply, given our state of understanding, to the notion that monetary policy should respond to signals of incipient financial instability, an idea that's received considerable attention since the crisis. Conducting monetary policy to achieve low and stable inflation over a time without doing damage to real economic activity is hard enough. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much, Jeff. So uh, we're going to open this up for questions. But first, I'd like to ask a question myself for, for everyone on the panel. Um, I'll, I'll start with an observation. During the period of the great moderation, uh, the central banking community reached a consensus that the appropriate anchor for monetary policy was an inflation target or objective of some kind for uh, developed economies, central banks. This was a 2% target for emerging economies, central banks. It was somewhat higher. I listen now to uh, the Republican debate the other day, and uh, Republican candidates are arguing that we should return, the U.S. should return to a gold standard. Uh, there was discussion here this morning about uh, money supply objectives. Uh, Scott Sumner is speaking later. He's spoken quite a bit about nominal GDP targeting. So my question is this. Uh, in the post-crisis uh, era, should we, uh, should the central banking community be thinking about a new anchor uh, for monetary policy? Is a consumer price inflation target still the appropriate anchor? Uh, I'll start with you, Jeff. Uh, I think it is. Um, I think it served us reasonably well over the last couple of decades. And, um, you know, dis despite our visit to the lower bound, I, 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 you know, I remain convinced it's, it's a workable way to organize thinking about policy. It's a workable way to communicate to the public about our intentions. It's a work workable way to focus um, expectations on the way we're likely to conduct policy in the future. Uh, absent um, us adopting a you know formal uh, rule type Taylor or others have advocated, um, absent something like that that pins down expectations, uh, we need something to 
uh, we need to do all we can uh, to try and focus expectations and align them with how we're likely to behave in the future uh, and eliminate as much uncertainty about that behavior as possible. I think it's a, um, a, 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 an important component of that. What about returning to the gold standard? Uh, I think history has demonstrated it's unworkable. Um, and as uh, Eric Leeper and John Faust discussed at Jackson Hole this year, um, it, it doesn't pro provide stability, the purchasing power of money over time, except in accidental circumstances in which the relative real price of gold remains constant over time. And then I, I want to turn to our other panelists, but just one final follow-up question. What about the role of asset prices, which are not captured in consumer price indices, and which we've discovered uh, to the economy's detriment in the last few years, can be very volatile and uh, have big economic effects? Should that, how, does that play, how should that play in? Uh, to the monetary policy framework. So asset prices falls in that negative list of things that monetary policy shouldn't be viewed as trying to do much about. Uh, if monetary policy is being effective at what it's able to do, which is maintain price stability, um, relative asset prices are going to do something. They're going to do what they will. They may be responding to all sorts of factors. It may be responding to bad government policy, may be responding to fundamentals. Um, I think it's it's beyond the, the can of monetary policy to respond to them above and beyond um, their, their implications for the path of inflation. So we have one vote in favor here of keeping a consumer price uh, objective as the anchor for monetary policy. Do we have two more votes? Can I uh, respond? First of all, to the gold standard. Uh, under the gold standard, there was what was called an um, automatic adjustment mechanism. If a country ran uh, a current account or a trade surplus, uh, prices would typically rise. And in a country that uh, ran a, a current account deficit, prices would uh, automatically be reduced. And so the uh, changes in relative prices would produce an, uh, an adjustment in the uh, current account imbalances. Uh, that was that went that um, ran from 1880 to the outbreak of First World World War World War One in 2013. They tried to reestablish a, um, uh, a a gold standard in the mid 1920s. Uh, it didn't work. Why didn't it work? And this has lessons for today for a number of reasons. First of all, things had changed. First of all. Uh, uh, during the uh, classical gold standard, there was no well-articulated theory linking changes in monetary policy to unemployment. That didn't come until 1913-14 with Irving Fisher's uh, work with, uh, with the work of Ralph Hartree and then, of course, with the work of people uh, like Keynes. So there was no theory that people understood, number one. Number two, uh, during the 1920s, there had been a dramatic change for a number of reasons. There was a rise in union power that didn't exist previously. Second, there was a rise in democracy. People could vote whether they wanted to keep the politicians in place. If politicians tolerated rises in, un in the unemployment rate in the 1920s, they would be voted out of power. That did not exist in the 1880s and 1990s. Um, and also, you had because of the rise in union power, there was the uh, prices were much less flexible under the gold the second gold standard than they were in the first gold standard. So prices didn't adjust. So unemployment had to adjust. So the circumstances were very different, which would have made it, which did make it much more difficult 
to have a working gold standard in the 1920s and earlier, and that's why the interwar gold standard broke down, point number one. Point number two, on the, um, on the possibility of uh, targeting asset prices, I think one thing we have to think about and consider is the following. Uh, in 2006-07, the federal authorities took no action to stem what some people thought was a financial market bubble. As a result, we had a financial market uh, crisis. Uh, should they have raised interest rates? Well, let's, uh, it's hard to deal with the counter-cyclical, but there is a counter-cyclical example that's very relevant in this case. And it's, that it's the other second major crisis of the, uh, um, of the last 100 years, the crisis of the Great Depression, 1929 to 1933. What happened then? The, finan the, the Federal Reserve officials paid attention to financial market bubbles, and they started raising interest rates in early 1928-29. So we have one episode where the Fed tried to break the bubble, they had a crisis. We had another episode in 2006, 2007, where they didn't raise interest rates trying to stem the bubble, and we still had a crisis. So it's very easy to be critical of monetary policy in retrospect, but I think monetary authorities find it, have to tread a very difficult path in, in order to control the inflation rate. So uh, it's difficult. Should there be an, an, a new anchor for monetary policy, or is the consumer price inflation objective? Consumer the right price one? inflation, I think, is the is the proper anchor because I don't think that the the Fed authorities can control the real variables. Okay, uh, Governor Sanchez. Yes, I will be. I will. I will vote in favor of the consumer price as well. Uh, in you know, in my view, the inflation targeting approach has worked relatively well, especially in emerging economies. The decline in inflation, um, which has been unprecedented during the last couple of decades, coincide with an approach to, to, of a commitment to maintain the level of prices relatively low with a infl concrete inflation target. Therefore, I think that's a, a useful and, and productive anchor for monetary policy. And regarding asset prices, I would like to say that it is not that monetary policy should ignore absolutely asset prices. But it's, it's difficult to, it is it's not, recommend, it's not advisable for monetary policies to influence directly asset prices. It's just a, a piece of information that could give you, give monetary authorities or financial authorities perhaps useful information. And I will call the attention of that many, many financial bubbles that eventually uh, are, become evident uh, as, as financial imbalances are the result of ill-designed domestic financial and, uh, and, uh, and fiscal uh, policies in, in each one of the uh, emerging economies that we are talking about. Okay, let's, uh, let's open this up to the audience. We have three votes here in favor of maintaining uh, consumer price anchors. Maybe we have some different views in the audience. Uh, let's start right up front here. Uh, a, a couple of uh, requests at the outset. Please identify yourself. And we have a lot of hands going up, so let's keep the question short if we can and uh, speeches. Thank you. Sure. It's uh, Mike Mork, Mork Capital Management. Uh, I confess I manage a hedge fund. But a uh, question for Mr. Lacker, uh, or anybody, but I think uh, Mr. Lacker might be the most appropriate person. We had this big increase in reserves. Uh, M2 has, you know, 
had almost an ideal Friedman type growth, five, six percent for the last three, four years. But that's only translated into nominal GDP growth of two or three percent because we had this drop in velocity. In the, your studies or the, the bank studies, what do you contribute the drop in velocity to of M2? Uh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I could identify specific factors. Um, you know, it, it, I mean, in broad sense, uh, it's stating the obvious that, um, you know, dollar GDP is, is, is uh, associated with uh, a larger quantity of, of deposits and, and currency in circulation. Um, you know, the, the huge amount of currency abroad makes me suspicious. Um, and not, but I haven't, I haven't done that, that calculation and, and disentangled that, so I'm, I don't really have anything to offer. Sorry. <clears throat> okay, let's uh, move. How about uh, right here in the third row, uh, the lady in pink, please. Hi, my name is uh, Shen Zhao with uh, ICMRC. Um, my question is mostly for uh, Ms. Lecker. Um, so a couple of days ago, we read the news about that uh, Ms. Neil Kashkari uh, has been named as next federal governor of Minneapolis. Um, you know, just on the surface, his academic training as well as his professional experience um, are very different from, you know, those of a current, like yourself and Ms. Buller and the uh, past governors. So my question is, is he a surprising choice for you, um, in your view? And also, um, is, there, uh, is this indicative of some kind of change within the Federal Reserve to seek future governors with different skill sets? Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I don't know whether I was surprised or not. I mean, I, I, I haven't met him. I don't know him personally. Um, it's, uh, always been the case that the reserve bank, pre the conference of reserve, the collection of reserve bank presidents has contained a mix of, um, PhD economists and non-economists. Um, I think that diversity has been useful. I think some of the non-economists have been very effective in monetary policy deliberations. Um, you know, they've managed to sort of use their research departments very well um, and uh, be very successful. And that, that goes back decades. So, um, I, you know, I think he can be, he can be successful, you know, just despite, um, you know, uh, having a different background from a lot of the other economists. Um, and, you know, I welcome diversity of views and welcome getting to, to meet him. Jeff, do you, do you worry at all that there's a risk of groupthink at the Fed when so many officials at, at the board and among the presidents have tended to be PhD economists who were trained in many of the, the same models in academia? Um, so I, I think there's a fair amount of diversity of views among the PhD economists. Um, so I, I, um, you know, I, don't, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think being a PhD, um, you know, means we have blinders on. And uh, so I, I um, you know, I, I think group thinks a risk in any institution and you have to take careful measures to guard against it. And I think the structure of the FOMC where you have, uh, you know, especially the role of the presidents that bring views vetted in their own research departments and their own, you know, among their own teams and uh, bring independent contact with a broad range of Americans in their district. I think, those, um, I think that structure has served the system well and has uh, served to, I think, um, uh, counteract um, uh, the groupthink tendencies. 
Let's try to go uh, to this side of, of the room. How about way in the back? I see a hand up all the way uh, in the back. It helps to be tall. Hi, uh, my name is Josh Crum. I, I run a financial technology company. And I guess my question really is about technology and prices. Um, you know, you've got a whole generation of, of you know, people that, that essentially look at things like education, healthcare, um, you know, protein prices, things that have been consistently for over a decade running at, you know, three to five percent above consumer price indexes. And, you know, they also look at banks where their wages, you know, go into a bank and and don't doesn't pay interest or keep up with those. So I guess the question is, do you do you do you look at you know people bypassing banking in, in the future uh, at all? You know you know going going to liquid asset markets uh, as their as their store of value. So this is uh, sort of a long-standing tension in monetary economics, um, and um, the extent to which. So the regulation of, of monetary assets uh, provided by the private sector uh, can give rise to incentives to bypass um, those intermediaries and create money-like assets outside of sort of the regular um, regulatory regime. This has been a, sort of a dilemma. It's been a, um, a major issue as well um, in that in the constant debate as to whether um, the creation of money-like assets should be regulated and tightly tied um, to um, government liability, say, or 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 uh, made safe, or whether um, uh, you know whether you know whether market forces could um, uh, be let uh, let free, essentially. Um, I, so I won't opine on that debate today. I've written about it times in the past, um, but it's certainly something we pay attention to. Um, in fact, the Federal Reserve System's involved in. Um, a payments initiative to to try and help, um, I guess I'd help I'd say help help a number of market a collection of market participants um, uncover what might be a sort of better technological arrangements for processing payments in the future. Um, so we have an interest in the effectiveness of the payment system because we're kind of a central node. Almost everything clears and settles on our books. Um, but as a matter of sort of doing monetary economics. Um, it's a it's a bit latent. It's a bit in the background, but it's something that uh, we're very well aware of. Uh, you know, the broader issue in this realm, of course, is the extent to which things like repurchase agreements um, and uh, money funds constitute sort of a money like asset that you might want to regulate in some way. Um, I mean, I think the the hard regulatory question there has to do with um, maturity transformation and the extent to which. Um, you know that sh that should have some, you know, Im implied lender of last resort backing or not, um, and uh, you know I think that's a really tough question. You know, for my mind, it's it's um, you know that's another sort of bypass regulatory bypass dynamic that uh, you know we, we sort of 50 years ago assumed banks were the only ones providing money like assets, and in the depression offered deposit insurance. To go along with that, and that led to these moral hazard issues that led to excessive risk taking, which led to regulatory constraints on risk taking by those institutions, layered on and layered on. But that led to incentives to bypass the banking system, but take the same sort of maturity transformation risks. Um, and the extent to which lender of last resort protection has been 
uh, implicitly extended outside the banking system has has made them vulnerable to the same sort of moral hazard problem. So I think it's a, a serious dilemma you talk about. I'd, I'd like to turn the uh, conversation for a second to to Europe. The topic of our panel is what monetary policy can and can't do. Uh, Mr. Tavles, I'd like to ask you, uh, should the European Central Bank at this point resort to more quantitative easing uh, to address the low inflation that the Eurozone area is experiencing? Well, the, um, the ECB has uh, resorted to quantitative easing since the beginning of the year. Uh, Large-scale uh, purchases of um, government assets and uh, uh, other private assets uh, in, in an effort to bring up inflation. Our um, policy objective is uh, price stability in the medium term, which is defined as uh, inflation close to but a little below 2% in the medium term. Uh, I think that it takes into account the fact that, that uh, the uh, ECB believes that the natural rate of employment is, is something that can't be affected, affected by policymaking. And what can be done by policymaking is to, is to bring up inflation. Uh, we will continue, uh, based on uh, the, uh, the last statements, to uh, undertake these quantitative easing measures until inflation comes up close to a target. So Mario Draghi suggested there could be more, uh, yeah. either a larger scale or carried on for a longer period. Be, what, be, what's your uh, view on whether – well, two questions. One is, is it working? And then the follow-up is, is more needed given the low level of inflation I, um, and expectations. Uh, I'm not in a position to say if more is needed. I think if, if uh, we don't bring up inflation by the uh, uh, fall of next year, then more probably will be coming, as Mario Draghi has said. Is it working? It takes time for monetary policy to work. As Friedman had said and others have shown, the effects of monetary policy operate with long lags, uh, but there are signs that the, the economy is beginning to pick up, uh, and I think that um, it will start working. All our estimates, based on the different types of techniques we look at, show that it will raise inflation. Okay, let's go back to the audience. Uh, how about uh, right uh, over here? Which right over there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hi, David Malpass with NSEMA Global. Um, so I wanted to ask Dr. Lacker, um, with the Fed is considering raising interest rates. Uh, so uh, is it conceivable that that will be stimulative? And I'm going back to the question from the gentleman about the velocity of money. One of the characteristics of our current system is uh, credit growth has been very slow. So uh, an, in, an increase in interest rates might actually allow a larger quantity of credit to flow through the economy, and which, would, which would then be an increase of velocity of money if uh, the bank deposits were not increasing in that. So I'm talking about credit growth broadly in the economy being facilitated with interest rates slightly higher. Thank you. Well, the standard way of thinking about that would also attribute a decline in, in the quantity of credit demanded to a rise in interest rate. So I'm having trouble getting my mind around um, the channel for stimulus that, that um, that you're describing. Through lenders, meaning a higher, right. uh, so, higher interest 
Right. Right. So um, price goes up, quantity supplied goes up, quantity demanded goes down. I'm just having a hard time reconciling that. So um, maybe we can talk later. Uh, I, I want to uh, turn to uh, to Governor Sanchez uh, for a moment. You talked about spillovers. The Fed is now pointing towards raising rates uh, by December. Is that what you're planning to do, December? <laughs> My plan is June. June, okay. Right. Uh, they, they could move as soon as December. Uh, can, can you describe to what extent the Fed's next move is going to dictate uh, Mexico's next move? and uh, how you contemplate responding to uh, the very large economy to your north in an environment where inflation is very low in Mexico. Okay, well, the uncertainty that uh, at least many observers uh, relate to the the uncertainty of U.S. monetary policy decisions, We, we don't know if that's... If the U.S. Fed is the only culprit of this volatility that we had uh, just a few months ago, but to some extent, we have had a lot of volatility in emerging markets. And Mexico hasn't been the exception. And one uh, reflection of that uh, volatility or pressure on on emerging market prices has been uh, the depreciation of the currency. And the depreciation of the currency traditionally had a very significant pass-through on inflation, that history basically comes uh, bring uh, comes from the time in which the Mexican peso was pegged to the U.S. dollar. That was up to 1995, and surprisingly, this pass through has been reduced uh, substantially. Mm-hmm. However, we continue to express uh, as a possible risk uh, for inflation going forward, uh, likely higher pass through from this. Uh, currency being pressed uh, in, under pressure coming from uh, this change in market sentiment related, to, at least to some extent, to the U.S. Po- uh, monetary uh, uh, policy normalization. And to that extent, we will continue to take that into account. We would like to be time consistent in our arguments. In the past, we have used the, the relative monetary stance of, U- of Mexico versus uh, the U.S. as one of the factors that allowed us to somewhat uh, take a more accommodative stance along with the output gap, but we did take that into account. Going forward, if the U.S. starts to tighten policy, we, we, have, to be, we have to continue to use that relative monetary stance as one of the the arguments that, uh, or one of the variables that will have to be taken into account, and mainly I would say that uh, would be a translation of possible possible impact that uh, that tighten, relative tightening may have on our currency, and, and only to the extent that that tightening may have some pressure on future inflation. But so far, we have been very lucky. Pass-through has been or lucky or... Perhaps we are just uh, getting some benefits out of more stable inflation expectations. So the, statistically speaking, the pass-through is, is non-significant uh, in the last few years. But we have to be conservative. We like to say, well, maybe we have been lucky so far, so we have to continue to monitor a possibility just 
to the extent that that may hurt inflation is not. Do you think the global slowdown calls for Mexico having uh, an easier policy relative to the U.S. than it does right now? Uh, I'm not sure I understood the. Well, so you, you talked about the re re relative policy, uh, Mexico's policy relative to the U.S. Given that the global economy is so slow, does it make sense to let the Fed go off and do its rate increases without following? Well, the Fed will decide whatever they they want to decide, and we would like to just take that into account. It is, it is impossible not to take the U.S. economy and the U.S. monetary authority not into account in our discussions, and that will continue to be an important uh, variable. I'm sorry. I know there were some more hands up uh, in the audience, and we didn't get a chance to uh, give everyone a chance to ask their questions, but I think most of our panelists are going to be around. Uh, so I hope you get a chance to ask them in private. Um, we now have a break for 20 minutes, uh, as I understand it. And that will be out in the main room where you could uh, mix, mingle, and have coffee and danishes. Yeah.